Welcome to Finance Meets Real Estate, a podcast that links finance professionals and real estate investors to partner on active and passive real estate investment opportunities. Each week, the podcast host, Stefan Svetkov, will sit down with a new guest and discuss how you can achieve financial freedom through real estate. To those of you who don't know me, um, I'm a financial engineer, so I work on a derivative, the derivatives portfolio management desk for an insurance company. Uh, but I've been investing in the recent three years in a small multifamily in New Jersey and upstate New York. So uh, that's uh, the direction in which this lecture is going to be. Uh, so I have a data analytics, LOC, NV analytics, and I also have a real estate investment firm. And I organize uh, a series of events like this one with different guest lectures or uh, networking socials. Um, so that's uh, about me. Uh, so we have a, a long uh, topic today. So um, the key element is valuation of uh, US real estate. Um, so that's the main, like this is the personal analysis I did myself uh, for basically my own usage. Um, and, and the main motivation is to find, uh, okay, are there markets where one can invest at this time, where one is not going to lose money in the event that it's peak of cycle. So this is more of a data-driven approach. It's not so much, okay, we have COVID, you know, people are moving out of New York City to these and these locations, which could be data-driven, but it's a little bit of speculative and like events and uh, trying to make a guess. This is more like looking at actual price, um, an actual price perspective and deriving insights from that. So, um, yeah, so with that, uh, uh, let me start. Yeah, so on June 8th, uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research um, announced a recession. So as uh, you know, most of you know, it's uh, two consecutive quarters of, um, of uh, GDP slowdown. So yeah, so um, they, and they said the peak of activity was in February, 2020. So with that, uh, this lecture is working on like different metrics, assuming it's, it's peak, what are some projections for the future for various markets on state level, county level, etc. Um, so there is this assumption in question, but the recession itself is not an assumption. It's a, it's a factual, factual thing. So one interesting study that uh, maybe some of you have seen. So Atom Data Solutions is a, is a data vendor that supplies um, data on foreclosures and some other like real estate uh, happenings. So, uh, so they did a, uh, the following study. So it's a county level study. Uh, it factored in three, three elements. So percent of houses with foreclosure notice, percent, percent of houses underwater, like with um, mortgages underwater and market affordability or how much uh, local wages can, uh, can pay for homeowner expenses. And you can see on the map, some of the uh, regions that are, um, sensitive in their study. And you will see also some of those same regions have been sensitive in 2007. And some of those regions are sensitive on some other, you know, related parameters as well. So that's uh, Northeast, uh, Florida, Illinois, and uh, Southwest. Um, so moving on. So uh, this is a lecture on um, private residential real estate. 
right? So it's mainly price histories from uh, FHFA and uh, things like that. So it's mainly house prices. Now I have like some fellow investors on this call, right? And uh, um, some of us are interested in larger multifamily, right? In the commercial, um, private uh, commercial real estate. So in that space, uh, and then, okay, some people might as well be interested in public real estate. So this is showing like some correlations, so in this case to the stock market. So in a public real estate, so if you want to look at um, without la day lagging, uh, so one would see like super low correlation, right? It's super different. Like you look at the chart, like you have uh, NCR EIF is um, the private real estate index, index and then the FTSE uh, rate uh, is the, the stock, stock market essentially, right? And um, you have, first of all, you have a really big downside direction in the stock market uh, move, and then it's much smoother. So the, the private real estate is one is much smoother, but second, it lags behind, right? So that's somewhat obvious, we maybe expect that. Um, but from this uh, perspective, if one doesn't delag, and that can, needs to be done also for the exact same assets. So these studies get done within pension funds, for instance, and for the exact same assets with delagging, then the correlation becomes 91% between the two, which makes sense. It's essentially the, the same underlying assets, right? So that's one thing. The reason why I'm showing this slide is, if we look at, so that's SF, um, that's, when is it? Like a couple of days ago. Uh, so this is uh, one residential real estate ETF on the stock market. And you see like the percentage that it's down. So it's down as of current COVID two days ago, 23%. And it, it's at its bottom, it was 44% down. Now, uh, so I speak to like other investors in the space and they say, um, okay, maybe it's, uh, it's just sentiment, right? That's, that's like one of the stories, right? It could be sentiment. Stock market reflects sentiment, Rio, Rio uh, residential real estate is, you know, it's more stable in that sense and, and so forth. Okay, so some of that is reflected in the smoothening we saw in the previous slide. But then we're looking at what is, um, you know, arguably the most efficient market, right? The stock market. So, um, and you have the most efficient market showing a 23% decline in residential real estate in US. Now we're going to look at further site valuations, et cetera, and it's not looking too bad. But again, it's something like to say, okay, it's gonna be like no impact at all. It doesn't seem reasonable. I think it's, the impact is not going to be very big, but this is something to consider as information from, from the stock market. Um, then moving on, so the next slide is, again, like as I mentioned, like some people are more interested in bigger uh, commercial multifamily. So that's correlation between uh, FHFA home prices. So FHFA is the governmental agency in US that uh, posts uh, housing statistics. So they have, uh, so their home price index, and then okay, an index I found on commercial real estate that is isolates multifamily specifically from COSTAR. So it's 97% price correlation. Now returns correlation is actually much less. It's like difficult to like have the two re the returns match up, et cetera. But I mean, you look at the chart, it's like there is some, uh, if, there, if there is a downturn in one, probably it may fall in the other, et cetera. So that's uh, that. Uh, so zero uh, under the current COVID, zero did a, uh, a literature review 
and the literature review on past pandemics. So they look at, look at some of the pandemics, including SARS and uh, the Spanish flu, and how they have behaved in comparison to other recessions. So there is, has been a stark difference in that case, let's say. So the, the difference being other recessions would be prolonged. So it would be, let's say, six to 18 months, et cetera. While here you have a um, sort of a, a jump back. So that has been, that is like their literature review. And also in some of those, it could be also capacity for recording price history, et cetera. But in Spanish food, it seems like, for instance, real estate prices didn't really drop. So that's quite interesting. Um, now, just a note on market efficiency, because uh, like probably at least half of the people here are real estate investors, right? And we, uh, from first-hand knowledge, we pretty much um, have the intuition the market is not efficient, right? Uh, now, if you look at try to prove this theoretically, then it would be different because, so here is a study from, uh, so these two researchers, um, and so they are discussing, okay, the characteristics of real estate, such as transaction costs, barriers to entry, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Those are some aspects that you would think make the market inefficient. But on the other hand, some of those characteristics make it harder to um, prove inefficiency too, or to test uh, a model at all based on at least they're doing model equilibrium prices. So, so yeah, so studies are not overly as conclusive as we would think on market inefficiency in real estate. But here is one thing though. So um, like a study in Istanbul, Istanbul uh, real estate prices um, showed weak forum efficiency basically to fail under several tests, including autocorrelation. And weak forum efficiency is, okay, efficiency based on the current prices are uh, based on the information set from past prices. And then if you expand this information set to uh, public information, then that's um, uh, semi-strong efficiency. And then if you expand it to private information too, then it's like super efficient, it's strong efficiency, right? And so weak form efficiency even is generally rejected. And I did a simple autocorrelation study myself in some of the following slides, and you're going to see it's actually pretty stunning. Uh, it's like super high autocorrelation. So, so that's uh, just some comments. Um, now, so the company that I mentioned, Atom Data Solutions, they post foreclosure rates. So this is to show some of the more sensitive states. So if, uh, for example, you guys are investing now in some of those states, it's, uh, well, dependent on valuation, I would say, but it's generally riskier there. So they may exhibit a little bit higher volatility as well, uh, but definitely foreclosures are consistently highest in recent years in New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Florida, and Illinois. So those are sort of like bad apple states. They have inherent problems, etc. one can say. So Florida is like super attractive, you know, it's very nice, people like to invest there, but purely from a price standpoint and looking at the market, it's not like, uh, it's not the most um, ideal market to invest, volatility is super high. Uh, so that's something to consider and foreclosures are high and there is high percentage of foreign ownership, which makes it uh, somewhat unstable. So then, um, so that's that. That said, uh, foreclosure activity rates for, so those are the top states, but the overall rate is actually pretty low. So now, even if you're in New Jersey, let's say maybe it's not so horrible because it's, uh, 
you know, if they have a high rate, they're the worst place from proportional standpoint, but then you have a, you have also relatively low rates as well. So that's, uh, that's something to consider, but then they were low prior to 2007, 2005 too. And the market was super overvalued in 2005, as we will see at some subsequent slides. So it doesn't mean much. It surely has, in, is in, on the verge of increasing or has increased already to an extent. So what happened in 2007, just like a review of price history. So those were the biggest uh, price drops in 2007. And I just want to make sure that everybody is actually uh, hearing me well, etc. that there's no noise and things like that. Constantine, can you comment actually on that? I have my friend on. Yeah, you're doing well, uh, except okay, that yeah. chime once in a while comes in and out. I'm not sure if it's coming from you or from somebody else on the call. But I see. Okay, yeah, let me make sure maybe to... Yeah, okay, okay, thanks. Okay, mm, yeah, so just... Uh, uh, Right, so 2007, like as we know, the biggest drop in real estate, recorded real estate history, right? But now that drop didn't happen everywhere. And it happened in some places and why it happened in those places and not in others. And that's some of the topic of this lecture. So the biggest drops were in Nevada, Arizona, California, Florida. And uh, there were some states in Northeast as well and uh, Michigan, uh, etc. Now there were states that didn't drop at all. And when I say at all, I mean literally at all. And that's North Dakota, for instance, is one state. And then South Dakota dependent on price source and some price here 3% drop and other price source is zero. So it's uh, literally there are some states that dropped uh, very zero or insignificant. And additionally, the time that the drop to, so it took from 2007 to 2012. So uh, on average, so nearly, well, it's Q4, so it's like four years and a quarter was the average time that it took in different states. And then um, looking at, just one moment. Yeah, so what I mentioned, so biggest price drops, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, California, Michigan, uh, Rhode Island, Idaho, Oregon, Maryland, and Washington. And then some of the unaffected states to the right, you can see. Um, so question is, why is that? Because like the initially, so I started like researching this. So initially my thought was, oh, it's driven by what my, I wanted to look at volatility. So we have uh, foreclosure rates is probably a major driver of volatility. So I wanted to look at that. So, um, so I will show some slides on this in a moment. Um, so here is the similar picture just for Northeast. And just one moment. Uh, so just uh, for Northeast uh, on county level and like on state level, so you can see the, some of the drops that happened. And it's pretty interesting actually, even that. Let's say we have Pennsylvania dropped only 9%. So it's the biggest real estate crashing history and it drops just 9%. So, and that's Pennsylvania. And people tend to think of Pennsylvania as okay, it has like some uh, areas that are not super nice, right? Partially and then has really nice areas as well. But, but why is that? It's only 9%. And then you have uh, New Jersey at 22% uh, uh, based on this data source, et cetera. And then pretty varying according to counties. So you see like, uh, yeah, New Jersey, some of the counties and Connecticut with pretty big drops. 
And then we look at New York State, and if we want to look at upstate New York, it's, it's been really much milder. Some counties barely dropped, like two, three, four percent, or some like seven, eight percent, etc. And in Pennsylvania as well, so there's like counties that didn't drop at all. And then there are counties uh, to the east or south that were, were more affected. So yeah, so with that, uh, like I wanted to like understand why is that? So I looked at first at risk return. So that was the first thing I was looking into. So here is price volatility. So it's just volatility relative standard deviation. So standard deviation percentage of the average price. That's all, right? So it's a data history 75 until 2020. So biggest volatility was shown in the West and Northeast. And then some of the low income states, they tend to be pretty not volatile actually, which is quite interesting. It makes maybe sense, but not from a finance person perspective where you would expect those to be also maybe volatile, even though they're small or unattended, so to say. But, but in reality, they, uh, speaking of real estate, they do become less volatile. So we have like West, the poorest states uh, in America, and objectively, I mean, they're West Virginia, Mississippi, uh, and yes, yeah, some of the following states uh, as well that they have, Arkansas, Alabama, and Oklahoma. And so they, were the least volatile and then a few more states in the Midwest. It then, um, so that's showing the same. So biggest volatility of the very top is DC, but okay, that's a city. So maybe it's a different dynamic. It's not, it's not even a real state or, or yet. Um, and then California, so the Western states, California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Colorado, and then some states in Northeast are you're pretty volatile as well, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island. So that's, um, so another thing, correlation. So correlation is a little bit interesting because let's see if you're investing in some markets are you going to get the overall economy effect. So if the US market is doing well, like where it's going to be different though. So like some of the states that have been different have been Nevada, Arizona, Florida, Northeast, and then Illinois, Ohio, Michigan. So Nevada is like super not overly correlated. I mean, in comparison, it's just 89%. Right. And then uh, like many other states, they hear, you know, like super much, like normally it's like 98, 99% correlation with the overall US market. So that's something. Mm, now, the, I had a slide on uh, market efficiency uh, in real estate, and so that discussed weak form efficiency. So as I mentioned, weak form efficiency is the mm, uh, historical prices being able to predict future prices. So this is a study I did myself that is one year, has a one year lag prices in uh, the different states. And these are the, these are the O2 correlations that are seen. So it's pretty interesting. So it's, um, you know, in the like 60s, 70s, 50s, somewhere percent of correlation. So for example, um, some of you know, and we're going to see afterwards like Colorado is like the top performing states uh, since 2007. But then if <laughs> we're not at the peak, then if you invest in Colorado now, it's 71% correlation, you're going to get the last year's performance. So it's not so bad. And the last year's performance is insanely high. So that's just something to consider. And then that's not gonna be the case if you're in North Dakota, South Dakota, and um, some others. Yes, so in Alaska is the only one that is actually negative autocorrelation. 
And then, okay, so South Dakota, Maine, North Dakota is basically close to zero, and then some other states. But if you invest in Massachusetts or Florida, and if the market does not reach its peak, you might get last year's performance this year as well, pretty much. Uh, or something you know comparable to that. So then uh, the next thing I wanted to see is, okay, what are the risk-adjusted returns and how does the risk-adjusted profile of uh, different markets looks compared to, um, let's say what I would expect to see in finance. Right? So let's say in finance, usually like there's this notion in their blue chips, um, right? And then you have, uh, let's say penny stocks is the worst, right? And then uh, you have penny stocks, they're they're super, they may have a huge return, but their volatility is super high. And now one would expect the, the risk adjusted returns of penny stocks to be of course less than that one of, uh, you know, even a tech stock like Microsoft or something like that, right? And um, now here, this is just as a comparison from finance. So sharp ratio, so sharp ratio is uh, essentially the excess return or excess expected return um, divided by standard deviation. So in finance, for instance, in recent years, and that varies by period, mid capitalization stocks have had maybe the highest sharp ratio and then you can see, okay, it's just, and this is just an example, the small and uh, cap and large cap stocks have us the same sharp ratio in this study. So on the graph, we have uh, small cap stocks with higher returns, more up, but their volatility has been higher. So they're risk adjusted, they're the same, right? So the similar study in real estate for at state level and I have it, I'm sorry, I have it at uh, county, et cetera level as well. So that's showing, so that's, I wouldn't say it's the very best metric to be frank, <laughs> because, okay, so um, it's showing based on history since 75, it's showing Colorado, Kentucky, Washington, um, et cetera, states in the lead. Now, um, if one changes the period, the set of states changes quite a bit. Like for example, at the very bottom, like with the lowest risk adjusted returns is Vermont, which is not even intuitive because Vermont, okay, one would think things are very stable there, right? But, um, but the actual metric, they have had like decent standard deviation, 51%, it appears in this period. Then if one switches period, Vermont can move more towards the middle. So it's pretty sensitive, it seems, um, but still it's something to consider, right? And, um, uh, one thing is, it's also sensitive to what purely performance have been, has been, short of the volatility. So states that performed well, like Colorado, um, you know, even Massachusetts, etc., they are going, California, right, they're going to appear in the, the left side table. And then states that don't perform too well, like Mississippi and West Virginia, they will appear in the right side table, just purely um, on, on the performance side of their, um, of their ratio. Okay, so then looking at performance. Um, okay, so that's one thing. Now, some of you are, and I personally am as well, there is on the investor forum called Bigger Pockets, right? So that's one of the things that kind of comes to me often. You know, there are always these comments, you know, for like different markets being good, quote unquote good, like with the green light kind of for different reasons. And the reasons can be super good and super valid. You know, like say for instance, the bottom reason here. So Wisconsin has a lot of investments from large corporations such as Foxconn, et cetera, et cetera. 
And um, right, so that can be a very good reason. But even if this reason is super good, this is just a single reason. And in the end, you have a, the price uh, of the price historically, at least retrospectively, reflecting a set of those reasons. And that can be like a million reasons and interactions between all, um, you know, all uh, investors and uh, regular uh, like homeowners, etc. And it's just not very, I feel like it's like some kind of intermediate kind of variable to look at it like that. It's just something very partial. It doesn't tell me so much if any kind of event happens, it doesn't tell me what's going to happen to prices per se, because there can be, you know, additional factors in place. So retrospectively, at least, we can't predict the future, even though we look by what the correlation looks like partially we can, but uh, we still cannot. Um, but retrospectively, price is the best performance measure. That's my personal opinion. It's not if people say that Jacksonville, Florida, for instance, the biggest city in Florida is very quoted as a great market. Jacksonville, Florida, if you look at its price performance, it's most of Florida. Of course, it's not a great market. I mean, it's not a, it's a Florida, it has been super volatile. It tends to be frothy. It tends to get overvalued regularly, et cetera, et cetera. And Jacksonville, Florida is negative peak to peak since 2007. So that's just one example. But if you go by investor narratives, it's gonna be a lot of reasons that are valid reasons as to why Jacksonville, Florida is this the hot market but um, yeah so my view is uh, at least retrospectively let's just just to look at the cumulative of all those opinions and uh, yeah and that's also going to be consistent with uh, the autocorrelation side that reject weak form efficiency so that so another thing for yeah so and I'm making the case for since you're looking at price performance now we have states like Nevada that rallied 120 percent since the bottom Right, but then they also crashed by, or whatever, hundred percent since but they also crashed by sixty percent, and they're negative peak to peak. So, but of course, it's just the long-term sustainable growth. So, the long-term sustainable growth, in my opinion, the simplest base measure is just peak to, to peak or peak to current call it price performance. So, it's pretty simple. The reason is okay. I remember like uh, like being Bulgarian. I used to invest in Bulgarian stock exchange in two thousand and seven. Okay, so this is to the left side chart, Sofix index. Just to compare an example of a weak market, okay? So the market is um, 12 years later at, was it 430 is like 25, 30, less than 30, 25% of its peak. So that's a case of very weak peak to peak, peak to current performance. Uh, basically not recovering post the crisis. And to me, a robust market should recover. Um, and yeah, so some of that dynamic exists in, in US real estate markets now. So that is very, in fact, rampant in Northeast. So here's Sussex County, New Jersey. So you look at its chart, not as bad as Sofix in this instance, but it's still a market that didn't recover. I think it's about 30% below 2017. A lot of markets in Northeast didn't recover and I'm going to show this in a moment. So those are some of the risks that I think it's very important to look at on a very granular level and be picking like every single county and like specific region to invest in because it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's really a very different performance that we have uh, here in the Northeast versus other markets that have been booming in terms of population, et cetera. Okay. Um, so third reason, just as evidence for this measure, 
And if somebody thinks we are not close to the peak currently, that may serve some opposite evidence, by the way, because we have um, in zero, uh, according to zero data, these are the states that are the only states that have negative performance peak to current. And that's only troubled states. So that's only the foreclosure states, New Jersey, Maryland, Florida, Illinois, Delaware, Nevada. And then some states with the massive population issues that we know of have in recent years, Connecticut and Rhode Island. So those are the only states that were not robust price-wise that did not exceed their 2007 price level. Okay, then, um, yeah, so that's the market performance in this sense. So here, retrospectively, what have been actually the hottest states. So um, you can see in dark green, that's uh, Colorado, Texas. There is also North Dakota, Idaho. Those are the top performers. Um, so here again, like top 10 best and top 10 worst. So we can see like some of the, like the best states that's like outstanding, outstanding performers. And to the right side, it has been, uh, you know, very, very different. And to the right side, those are states that mostly population is not really growing there. Um, okay. And then on the city's level, so that's a county level analysis actually for the county that contains the city or the city may contain the county too, dependent on the case, but the predominant county to be mapped to that city. And then, uh, so here, best performing cities. So if one invests in Denver, Colorado, it's 79% below the previous peak of 2000. So that's the best performing city in the top 100. And yeah, so it's uh, basically cities in Colorado and Texas. Those are, those are like, that's like killed everything else, basically those two markets uh, by far. And yeah, some of the worst performing, uh, very specific cities in California. California has not performed that poorly, but it's very, first of all, California has a huge number of cities. It's maybe like 25% of the cities in the top 800 or so, or 20%, I think. And yeah, second of all, it's uh, just very, very thin performance. Like one can make a lot of money in California in certain cities. It's very, very interesting. Like, um, yeah, so that, that's that. Uh, yeah, and some other states that are, that are kind of, I would call it troubled, you know, not to label negatively, but in Nevada, Florida, Maryland, Illinois, Arizona, and yeah, are at the bottom. Okay, then market performance in Northeast. Uh, so again, like uh, we discussed already, it has been inferior uh, peak to peak, uh, especially in New Jersey and Connecticut are uh, two that are, have been relatively weak. And yeah, now of course, except for DC, but that's the city pretty much. Uh, so that has had amazing performance and performance. And then Massachusetts has had decent population growth and uh, is looking okay. And then the rest states, some of them have performed fine, like Pennsylvania and New York, for instance, which is interesting. Like with all the population slowdown, they still have performed okay. So incomes have grown there, actually. So that's uh, something. One moment. Okay. Um, yeah, and then in um, market performance in the other, two states close to New York City. Uh, so we have 
New York State and Pennsylvania has been different. I mean, much better than New Jersey. So here we see a lot of green uh, counties as well. So some counties have performed really well. So um, Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, that's Pittsburgh. So that's the best performing city, I believe, in North, the Northeast uh, in this market cycle. And then uh, cities close to and counties close to Niagara Falls, basically Niagara and uh, what is it? And Buffalo have performed actually very well in New York State. And overall, upstate New York has performed really well. And then the parts closer to New York City have performed the worst. Actually, if somebody has been budgeting, okay, I'm going to pay a higher price and maybe compromise some cash flow or something to invest closer to New York City. In fact, then market performance was worse as well. So that's how it worked. Um, then a note on New York City suburbs. So that's just what I mentioned. It's pretty interesting because we have New York City with all the domestic migration. Everybody going, not just now during COVID as projections, but already for a decade being people moving from New York City to other places. But with all the domestic migration then helped by foreign migration and uh, some population natural increase, New York City has done really, really well. Now, the New York Manhattan has had some issues as we know recently with being overpriced and, you know, price performance has been a little bit worse there. But the rest boroughs in New York City have been amazing and then not so for the immediate suburbs. So like me as a New York City suburb investor, like that was something that kind of, well, that's like a bummer that sucks, right? Because we have um, Hudson County in New Jersey and Long Island essentially in Nassau County and Westchester significantly underperforming the city itself. But then more important, they're significantly underperforming actually other cities in America. So, um, yeah, so I think I didn't put it here, but the median performance of cities is 15% peak to peak. You know, a lot of cities one could have done amazing as we see like some of those. So if one invested in most big cities or in half of big cities in America for sure, um, then one would have done better than investing in New York City suburbs. So that's something to consider. Okay, so now coming to the, this is the most important section of valuation. So that's the main findings for today. Uh, so, so I think valuation is important. So the case from finance. So, so in finance we have, so everybody knows we have price earnings ratios, right? So price earnings ratios. So here is a study done by John Hussman. Uh, so this is a hedge fund called Hussman Investment Trust. So, so here price earnings ratios show um, seven trailing, trailing 12 months price earnings ratio shows 76% correlation to um, subsequent actual S&P 500 total returns. Now then some metrics have been developed that are improved, that are behave better, that then show higher correlation, right? And Hasman funds, they have some of their own metric at the very top, see, supposedly. <laughs> their data is correct, showing 91% uh, correlation with subsequent drops. So valuations are important. We don't know when, what the timing is going to be. We don't know when a drop would happen, but when that drop happens, that drop, according to this, you know, let's say from finance, would be consistent with valuations, with some correlation, like 91% to that valuation metric, if it's non-financial market cap, corporate gross value added, for instance. So then that's why it's important. So my goal is to do like the same thing in 
here, right? So then, um, so first, this is like an article that I saw on a Visual Capitalist for most overvalued countries. It seems to use a similar approach, except uh, the researcher used several um, several metrics: house price to rent ratio, house price to income ratio, real house prices, credit of households, percent of GDP. So he used like those metrics, and the 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 map here is showing the most overvalued according to house price to rent countries so it's pretty interesting actually because we see us not particularly overvalued and that was that was middle of 2019 but okay it's not super different versus now so but on the other hand we have uh, canada uh, some countries in scandinavia and also australia and new zealand very very overvalued and then we have uk quite overvalued as well so that's pretty interesting. So now the 110 ratio that they're getting here on house price to rent, it seems pretty reasonable. You will see based on some of the subsequent slides I'm going to show. So, so I watched a lecture like you now, just like this one on a meetup uh, by where the guest was Ingo Windsor. So Ingo Windsor in 2005, he was on the news and he was basically saying that markets are dangerously overvalued. So those were his states in 2005. Now he wasn't just talking about it. He actually had data to back it up. Um, I mean, some of specific cities, I'm sorry, he was referring to specific cities. So he was showing like all the cities in California, etc. And this specific table was in 2006, okay? So, um, but uh, yeah, he was doing it for some time. So in 2006, you know, showing like some of the, uh, City is basically overvalued versus historically where they should be versus um, incomes, local per capita incomes in that, uh, in that specific city. So one didn't have to wait to, to 2007 to know that the market is overvalued. It was actually, one could measure it and one could go and speak in 2005 about it. And that's completely doable. And so that's one thing. So now, uh, so I did, essentially went and recreated like a severe study myself. So I just computed for at cities level, uh, sorry, state level and at counties level. So states meaning the 50 and district of Columbia 51 and then counties, I think there are about 2,700 that are available. So recreated the similar study, right? So the study uses um, historical, so basically the study uses just two sources of data. So one is price histories, Price histories from on the state level, I used uh, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis or um, uh, FHFA uh, on county level. And then income history is from uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis. Right, so those, just those two var variables alone. And I computed how the, the metric, how price income ratios have been historically and then percentage deviation of that. So percentage deviation of that is displayed in, in this map. So that means for instance, in Nevada, it's 49%. So this uh, vector of numbers um, that includes the 49% has been correlated 83% with the actual drops that happened post 2007. So that's such a simple study. It's like fourth grade material, right? And then you have 83% correlation versus the uh, subsequent actual price drops. So that's, I thought like when I did it, I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, that's like so useful because 
And one reason why it's useful is what happened in undervalued states and the fact that they almost didn't drop. So that makes for continuity. If any, anyone like myself is involved in this business, right? Um, you want to have continuity. You want to be able to continue doing business, but certainly you don't want to be dishonest, right? With your investors and buy things that are going to lose money or something, right? Etc. Um, so that's ridiculous. So, so you want to uh, obviously, you know, have a good, good selection. So that I think this framework allows that. So that's, I was really happy for. So here's in 2007, what happened in overvalued states? So the most overvalued markets were California, Florida, Arizona, DC, Nevada, etc. So you saw so previously the drops, you see them also here. So the actual drops that happened. It's not the exact same percentage. And you see, by the way, DC is a very different story because there is a huge income growth there and DC has never corrected and including until now. So, but this is a city, so those kind of dislocations happen on a small level, but it seems they don't like happen on the actual state's level. Uh, so, so that, and then very interesting what happened in, um, yeah, one moment. So yeah, so the media, median valuation was 26% for overvalued markets. Overvalued, let's say greater than 10% valuation metric. And then the median actual drop that happened was 22%. Okay, then the same thing in call it fairly valued market. So between zero and 10% valuation, zero to 10% valuation, the median drop was 11%. And the median valuation was 5%, right? So it was milder for them for sure. And then most interesting what happened in undervalued markets. So in undervalued markets, so they had a median valuation of minus 5%. And what was the drop? 4% median. Now 4%, it's actually, I would say, that's actually not a drop in valuation terms. That is an income drop. So I'm going to show like some income statistics later and 4% was the average income drop in US post 2007. So valuations actually stayed the same, high level speaking, right? High level speaking, valuations in those states stayed the same. So you have the biggest crisis in history, in real estate history, and it has a lot of, um, you know, like, mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that has a lot of, you know, financial aspects in involved. And yet, it doesn't matter if the place is undervalued. Undervalued states did not drop on valuation. They dropped slightly on income, but they did not drop on valuation. So that, I thought, was for me the most important finding for, um, for this, uh, because that means, okay, one can invest in markets that are undervalued now, and not get a hit in the event it happens to be the peak. Maybe it's gonna continue for a few more years, et cetera, but if it happens to be the peak, one can actually invest in these markets and not get a hit. So uh, that, and then real estate valuation current one. So you saw like here, how overvalued certain markets only were, like certain markets like, okay, in this table, California, Florida, Arizona, et cetera, super overvalued. And just see how far I'm pretty happy time. So, right, so super overvalued. And then the same thing, what happens in, um, currently it's a much milder situation. So it's pretty interesting. So the current market is under too fairly valued if we were to make a broad statement, but there are a few overvalued markets. So, and some of them are pretty hot and some people rave about them. So if you do invest now in Idaho as well, you're going to lose money. So there are markets that are overvalued. Uh, but 
most of them are not. So here, the, the overvalued markets. So Idaho, DC, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, Florida, Texas, and Washington. Those are all of them, in fact. The rest are sort of fine. Um, but then I would argue I would not invest in fairly valued ones at all either, because uh, that's actually risky. Because if a correction happens, we saw before, those get the hit as well. As a milder hit, but they still do. Yeah, so this list is interesting. So why are these markets overvalued? So those, I think it's two categories. So it's either markets that really rallied a lot. So those are the best, some of the best performing markets. So Colorado, Texas, Idaho, DC. But also it's some markets, I'm sorry, that have just weaknesses. So they actually performed not so strong, peak to peak. So we have Nevada, Arizona, and Florida. They weren't so strong. And yet, they are overwhelmed. <laughs> Why? Because I mean, they have weaknesses. Their incomes didn't perform so well. So we have some of the weak markets appearing in the overvalued list. And we have some of the strongest markets as well. So that's that. And then here, what I do is, so I do a linear regression on valuations and price drops in 2007 and current valuations and what will the price drops be. So I use the, just the regression coefficients from 2007 just uh, swap and intercept, <laughs> it's pretty simple. And those are the projected drops. So now to clarify, this is not because I'm bearish and I think that these drops will happen. In fact, I'm making no statement whether they will happen. It is because it is that I make that, assuming we're at peak, and that's why some of those measures speak about peak to peak price change in fact, because we don't know if it's the peak now, it may be peak to current through the code, right? But uh, I speak of peak to peak current, price change because assuming we're at peak, these are the drops to happen from that peak date to four years later, let's say, <laughs> to the very bottom. So that's what is um, what this is showing. Because what happened in 2007, the valuation that was at the exact peak date in every region, is taken what is the valuation at the exact date, which is different in origins. And then there is a different time that is going to last the drop which could be for four years or it could be three years or six years in some locations. And over that peak to bottom drop, this is the, the drop to happen. And that's what is correlated 83% on the state level. Okay, so then uh, fairly valued markets. So uh, we have a few of them. So they're projected some drop just because they're using the, that worst case scenario, right? They're using 2007, they're using, it's not so worst case, it's just a correction scenario, that the correction happens. Uh, so that, um, so again, I just want to repeat in fairly valued market, material drops can happen. If it's at the peak, they can drop decently. It's not sufficient to be just fairly valued, I think, and it's not so protected or safe. And then uh, current undervalued markets, you see a long list, the majority of US states are actually undervalued. Okay, some of them still project some drop because, I mean, first that's uh, income drops as well, right? And uh, some of them are close to fairly valued, so they can have a somewhat bigger drop, etc. If a correction is to happen, so that's that's possible. Okay, then markets for market selection. So my personal view in those terms is, of course, under to pick undervalued markets, but undervalued markets that have perform, performed well. So that's what this table is showing. And I have some. Um, yes, yeah, so these are like some pretty good states actually. 
So you have like Kansas, Indiana, um, Oklahoma, Iowa at the, in the lead actually, because they have performed, you see 27, like Indiana 27% peak to peak, and yet it is still undervalued. So that's the kind of market I think to invest in. So just one moment. Yes, yeah, so then some scenarios post, if something is overvalued, does it mean it's going to resolve or not? Is it going to correct? Not necessarily, right? So one scenario, is it correct? So this is the table above. So you have, um, assuming that the historical, historical price to income ratio should be four, let's say. Then now if we're now at five, so we are overvalued, uh, well, 25% from the bottom, 20% from the peak. So we are overvalued. So price correction, just price drops 20%. So that's valuation is resolved. That's it. Second scenario, reduced price growth. So price drops very little, just 2%, let's say between, let's say five time periods. And then income grows, uh, grows but doesn't grow that much. Uh, sorry, no, income grows, uh, sorry, income grows normally, but price grows very little, it's reduced price growth, and then, okay, the evaluation resolves. And the third scenario is, okay, prices grow really nicely. It's possible that they continue. The market is overvalued, prices continue to grow nicely, but the valuation still resolves. So that's if income grows super, like there is a super growth, essentially. So that's uh, the other scenario, and that's how it looks in uh, graph term, terms, the same, the same discussion. Now, as a case study for um, that is, uh, for instance, Brooklyn, New York. So Brooklyn, New York is pretty interesting. So it was overvalued 55% at 2017. And yet, uh, the correction, the price correction that happened was actually only 14%. And yet, the market is somewhat fine now. The market is currently, the current valuation is only 6%, 6% overvalued. So that's pretty interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, that's a mix of, so the post from peak to bottom, valuation moved from 55 to 12%. It's a mix of, okay, the price dropped. Income, unlike in other places where incomes dropped, their incomes performed well. They continued to increase. They just didn't, they had, I think, a slight um, hiccup sort of, and then they continued to do really well. So, uh, so incomes did well. And then there is also some change in the historical levels. I mean, due to recent history, but that seems accurate to be reflected. And so, yeah, so with that, that was the change in valuation, but it was affected in some of the other elements and price was only some, some component. It's not very typical. So it's not very typical, but yet situation, the situation was mild there. Um, it would look very different in most other locations because income is going to show a negative change here. So, and the whole thing is going to be different, but that's sort of, you can call it an income super growth scenario. Uh, because even in the times of, uh, you know, basically the marketing crisis, et cetera, Brooklyn, New York incomes increased. So that's pretty interesting. And then, um, yeah. So how often this did a correction happen? Like if we have an overvaluation, is it going to correct or no? So, uh, we have, let's say currently, so from 2,700 counties. So they're about 38% are overvalued. I know in 2007, about 38% counties were overvalued, meaning more than 10%. They were still overvalued more than zero, but 
let's say fairly valued 28% of them, and then undervalued 34% in fact. And then the overvalued counties, 93% um, of them corrected. So corrected meaning, let's say, at least half of their evaluation got overvaluation got removed. And then from fairly valued, at least half of their small overvaluation got removed in 98%. And undervalued, they saw an income drop, let's say, more than 2% in 94% of the cases. So in 2007 was definitely a correction scenario, like mostly everything just corrected. So that's uh, pretty interesting. Okay, so then the same study performed at county level. So at county level, there is um, much lower correlation. So it's much harder to predict what's gonna happen in individual counties. So it's not 83% anymore, it's 73, but that's different. So that's already kind of weaker, I would say. But still, this is a regression of 2,700 US counties their valuation metrics in 2007 and their actual price drops that happened. And still that shows 73%, which it's still, I think, looking pretty good. So that's about the county level regression. So based on this county level data, these are uh, some cities currently, which are currently overvalued. So as we saw, there are just a few states that are overvalued. Mostly the market is fine, but there are some overvalued markets. So if one invested in Boise, Idaho, it's super overvalued. And then you have, uh, okay, Las Vegas, uh, Tampa, Florida, Austin, Washington, Fort Worth, Phoenix, Nashville. Those are like some pretty hot market considered that they're, um, that are currently overvalued. So that's interesting. And then these are some markets which are the most undervalued ones. So we have Chicago, Cincinnati, Baltimore, Greensboro, Memphis, Pittsburgh, Louisville, San Francisco. So yeah, so for instance, San Francisco performed really well. And yet San Francisco is actually, and everybody speaks, the narrative in San Francisco is San Francisco is expensive and it's, yes, but incomes are super high. San Francisco is actually still undervalued. So that's interesting. Okay, and then um, here are some good cities to invest in potentially. So best performing cities in terms of peak to peak performance that are still undervalued. So what's very interesting for me at least is that Denver, Colorado, the most, the very best performing city in America is actually at, uh, the, its valuation is like minus 0.3%. So it's basically zero. So that's pretty interesting. So, <laughs> So it's like rallied so, so much, but incomes really were super high. And yeah, so the most booming market is not overvalued. And actually, there, but the rest cities in Colorado, most of them are overvalued. So it might get affected from that. But these are some markets where if one invested in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, now it's 8% undervalued and it had a super strong performance. So um, those are some good markets. Also, uh, yeah, Omaha, Columbus, Indianapolis, Atlanta, Louisville, Philadelphia are some other uh, bigger, like well-known cities. So valuations in the Northeast, so I'll try to move a bit quicker from here. So in the Northeast, uh, currently it's mostly undervalued on the state level, except DC, which is super overvalued, but just as discussed, it's just a city basically. So um, yeah, everything else is pretty much undervalued. On the county level, we can see very interesting case for New Jersey. So let's say myself having been an investor in New Jersey for three years now. Um, it's interesting to see because okay, New Jersey is this foreclosure state. It's the super weak state. It's a state that 
last crisis dropped more than New York State and dropped more than Pennsylvania. And I would have thought it's because of its foreclosure status. But no, it was just more overvalued in 2007, and now it's actually not going to drop. And now the only county that appears more sensitive to dropping is Hudson County, which is, I think, 2% overvalued. Uh, and everything else is uh, super undervalued, and so it's not going to be possible to drop. It's just way too much, I think. Um, and yeah, Connecticut, you know, the big uh, sort of troubled state with population and job outflow that, I mean, the trend could change with COVID, but historically it hasn't been the case. So Connecticut is super undervalued, like the majority of its counties. And then we have um, New York State and Pennsylvania. So in uh, New York State, things are working also mostly good in most upstate New York counties with some few exceptions closer to Niagara and then closer to New York City that are more like fairly valued or slightly overvalued. And in Pennsylvania also like one can invest in many, most, mostly it's undervalued in the majority of places in Pennsylvania currently. So then a quick look at population and income. So this is, uh, right, some of you have seen this uh, chart, like this uh, published in different articles. So it was done by Redfin. So Redfin just did user statistics study. So to the left, uh, wait, this one is, is this one from, oh yeah, so yeah. So the left is basically percentage of New York users that are searching elsewhere. So it's 35% and then destinations where they want to go. So let's say Atlanta being at the peak, et cetera. So that was done in April. I think, yeah, that's okay for Q2 2020. So that's more of, okay, some of the COVID, some of the COVID effects, et cetera, and what's gonna happen in that sense. So user search on Redfin is showing that. So like New York is the most affected. And it's also a very big city, but it's uh, looking worse than San Francisco, Los Angeles, etc. Um, but again, this is just one element. So this is, you know, can be major. I'm pretty interested to see, but uh, it's only one element. It's basically domestic migration. So we'll see what's going to happen there. So population growth by U.S. state is very, very interesting. So that's has partly driven some of the well-performing markets in the past. So, um, as, uh, so we can see in the Northeast, uh, here most of, the, most of the states in the Northeast are pretty small on the map, but they have uh, performed, um, I mean, population doesn't grow much in the Northeast. It's like zero to three, four percent. And then uh, the booming, and so this is actually over 19 years. So since 2000, since 2000 population count over 19 years. So nor Northeast, let's say zero to three, four percent. But then we have Nevada, 54 percent population growth. Apparently not enough <laughs> to drive great price performance there. But uh, Texas, Colorado, the most booming states and Idaho and Utah, by the way, as well, are with enormous population. I mean, like just look, it's like 40%, like the biggest state in America, 40% population growth over 19 years. And you know, people made a lot of money there. So that's, because uh, definitely been the very best market, um, very best big market to invest in the US. So um, the slowest population growth, so West, 
Virginia, Michigan, Rhode Island, Illinois, New York, Vermont, Ohio. So population growth though has three components. So it's natural increase, international migration, and domestic migration. So yeah, so again, here the best and worst performers. So um, Florida, Arizona, and Nevada that are not the most stable in prices have had though population growth, but it appears a little bit proto, how to say. Um, so yeah, it hasn't been reflected in their prices for sure because it's a different dynamic. There are a lot of foreign buyers. Uh, there is, uh, sorry, you know, there's like aged population in Florida, et cetera. So, so that, but yeah, to the right side, worst performance, there's quite a bit of Northeast there in some of the lower income states. So that, so do, domestic migration. So has been strongest. So most people have been moving towards the West except California. So have been moving towards the so Western states like Nevada, Arizona, Oregon, Idaho, Washington states, Montana. Um, and then, yeah, also Colorado, Texas, Florida, and North and South Carolina. So those are the places where people have been moving over the previous, this is since 2010, so over the previous nine years. So where it has been the weak, weakest, Alaska, Northeast, parts of Midwest, Hawaii, Kansas, and New Mexico. Uh, domestic migration here the same, like so the same thing that I just mentioned in table form. So international migration though has been a different picture. So that's some of the effect that is offsetting that is keeping New York State up. Because if we look at like, like people are concerned about people, mo people moving out of New York City now, people have been moving out of New York City already for nine years. So in the state as well. So New York State is, what is it? It's the second worst in domestic migration the past decade. So um, that said, it's one of the best in international, international migration. So international migration has been strongest in the Northeast, in Florida and Hawaii. So that's where foreigners want to live. So, so that's interesting. And then international migration, yes, so that's the same discussion. New York State at 4%, New Jersey is also pretty strong in international migration, 3%. And the worst performers, well, some low-income states and, I don't know, places where foreigners probably don't go. So it's West Virginia, Mississippi, Arkansas, etc. And natural increase by U.S. states. So that's just the, um, like, births less of deaths, let's say. So natural increase has been strong in the West, uh, except Oregon and Montana, Alaska, the Southwest, like the two Dakota state and Nebraska and has been weak in the low income states, Florida, Northeast and Ohio. So in Northeast, natural increase is also relatively weak. Um, yeah, so we see Pennsylvania to the right side among worst performers, for instance, and Vermont and New Hampshire is some Rhode Island, Connecticut have been weak on that front. Yeah, and Utah is number one. Okay, so income drops. So in 2007, like as we discussed, like there were some of those price drops and valuations adjusted, but partly also incomes dropped. Um, and then incomes dropped the most in, um, well, again, lower income states, West Virginia, no, sorry, were dropped the most in the opposite, in the, the West, Southwest and Florida, well, not the opposite, but in, in those states. And then the smallest in lower income states, West Virginia, Maine, Kentucky. 
uh, Alaska and parts of Northeast. And uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. So income drops have been pretty substantial, like 10% let's say in Nevada, which is, which is huge. And then in, uh, yeah, in Vermont, let's say just one and a half percent. Now income, where have incomes been growing? So we saw where population has been growing, but it's interesting that some of the places that have been weak on population, the incomes have still, so have still, still grown though. And that, that have kept real estate prices there. So that's, for example, New York State. So West US parts of Northeast, incomes have been growing the strongest. So we see like places like California and New York, population is leaving those places, but incomes have grown quite nicely. So that's, that has kept uh, prices. So, uh, so that's the view of that. And the worst performers, performance we see in uh, Alaska, Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut has had um, significant job, uh, job issues. So hopefully that changes for the better for them maybe in the next cycle. Okay. So that was most of the data. So now some uh, insights actually. Um, so now, because here I've been looking at valuations, but most people concerned with bigger multifamily, they tend to think of a market being overvalued if cap rates are, are low. So that's the usual thing. I don't think it's a good, good way, honestly, but I understand why it's done in the larger multifamily space. But um, so, what, so this is like, okay, correlation between cap rates and interest rates. So now if the thinking then goes because um, interest rates are low and they're, you know, maybe getting even lower, et cetera. It's the general trend moving towards Europe, maybe, and Japan potentially, right? So interest rates are super low. So what is, uh, so cap rates are low and they're going to be even, even less. And now the thinking is, now let's say if I go and compute those valuation metrics, so are they correct given they are at the current low level of interest rates? So maybe, um, you know, that's, maybe they should be adjusted you know, for the, for the low level of interest rates. So, so that's, I did some study on this. Um, yeah, but, uh, but before that, just for regions. So there is some data from readnotes.com on cap rates in um, top 100 cities. And this, I did some correlation of just how cap rates uh, have per work, uh, correlate to valuation metrics. So for instance, if markets are undervalued, um, that they are going to show the higher cap rate. So that's negative correlation. So, mm, so let's say, um, yeah, so for example, so here in class C, there has been negative 41% correlation, which is pretty decent. But it's interesting, it's not the super high correlation. It's not like 80 or 70 or 80% or more, um, or where you can expect not to make good cap rates in markets that are well-performing in price terms. So that's pretty interesting because for me, this means you can find markets that have very good price performance and you can get a good cap rate, like eight or more percent, let's say, right? So that's something. So now um, on adjusting valuations to interest rates so in finance, we have price earnings ratios, the most famous metric. And this is a study by, um, maybe a simple study, I don't know, by suredividend.com, where they did, uh, they computed correlation versus the 10-year rate, and seen also on the charts, it's negative. So, um, so for example, that means if the market is appearing overvalued, when we adjust it for the low interest rates, it's going to be less overvalued, and, 
in this. But in fact, I will show that it seems it's not, it's different for uh, price income ratios, for instance. So this I computed, uh, so here I show on the chart real estate valuation or price income ratios, and then versus the 10-year treasury rate. So the 10-year treasury rate, as we know, on a downward trend, well, the nominal one, but fine. So on the downward trend heavily uh, for many, since 1980, already for 40 years. But valuations have actually kind of been level. So they haven't really, they haven't uh, moved in any way. But let's say, okay, if somebody says it needs, one needs to make an adjustment for interest rates, so I did it quickly. So based on a regression versus the 10-year interest rate, the current, Current valuation is 5.89 for US real estate. So it's 5.75, right? And then using the regression coefficient versus 10 year rate, if we try to predict that it's 5.89, so it's actually higher. So it's pretty interesting that price income ratios have actually had positive correlation versus interest rates, which is quite interesting. Now that's in this more recent period. It has been less positive before, like closer to zero. But still, it's not a negative correlation. It's not showing what is in finances, 65% or 53% negative correlation that is clearly pronounced. Here, it's more interest rates are going down, but valuations appears do not need to get adjusted. I would adjust them if so, but it appears not the correct approach. So that's, then a further study is uh, to look at some of the metrics at the beginning of this presentation in terms of trend metrics, like autocorrelation and risk return. Um, metrics, uh, so volatility, risk adjusted returns, correlation, autocorrelation, to look at them not, um, not on the price level, but sort of to normalize the price by income. That, but then that's valuation. So essentially to look at the valuation, like look at the metrics on that. So that would be something I honestly, it's like way too many slides. It's like over 80 slides. So I cannot like, I wasn't able to do that as well and include it here. And uh, yeah, so we are over time, but we are, we'll use a little bit of time for questions in a moment. So, but that would be a good study to make if somebody has the time. And another study is, okay, correlation study for undervalued markets, depending on if they're undervalued because of the price side of things or the income side of things, what is going to be the, um, the future um, price, let's say, you know, correlation versus future price performance and, and things like that. So now, so a note to investors, so as always, so my opinion, like uh, three elements for picking a property and market. So that need to be present. So there are three necessary requirements. That's my personal opinion. Leverage market inefficiency, what is uh, colloquially, uh, colloquially referred to as value-out, right? So you want to have like some kind of identified discrepancy at time zero. So this is, um, it's not necessarily renovation. It's not necessarily physical alteration, alteration to the property. It could be various, various factors. Um, and so that's one, but there needs to be a negative, uh, um, an inefficiency that you leverage with that. And then you get, make a spread like that. Then also surplus cash flow leverage. So that's the, another requirement uh, for me personally. So essentially spread of camp rate over the cost of financing levered, let's say four times or and then uh, our, the third thing that is the value of this lecture, a robust market. So a market that has performed strong peak to peak at the current uh, peak to current code, but assuming we're closer to peak of cycle, um, that also has negative, uh, negative valuation and that has strong projected drivers, let's say for the future, population, income, et cetera. 
but undervalued markets that are strong, generally that all the metrics are good and they're currently undervalued. Properties that have inefficiencies and cash flow, so this is the way to go. Those are the three criteria. So with that, thank you very much. And um, it was a long lecture where I went a little bit over time, but I appreciate everybody listening to me and um, I'm open to questions. So I think I may need to unmute. Hi, Stefan. Uh, thank you for the uh, nice lecture and uh, lots of information there to uh, digest. I definitely want to take a look at the PowerPoint uh, in details later on. Right. Yeah, if anyone wants, by the way, I'm going to send the, the PowerPoint because, um, yeah, it's a lot of stuff to, to digest. Yeah, uh, go ahead. My question is, uh, if you can pick like one real estate market right now, um, start with the state and think about a specific county or specific city, what would be your best projection uh, right now in uh, August 2020? Best performance, what you think? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so this, uh, yeah, so I would pick this, uh, we have had this discussion before. So that would be the state of Indiana currently. So that's a state that has performed 27% uh, PPP, that's one undervalued. And then the best county in Indiana is uh, Hamilton County. So that's, uh, that's an example. If one wants to go a little bit more aggressive, one can invest in Denver, Colorado. That is basically fairly valued. And if the market continues for another year, one would make a lot of money even just for like one year or something on price appreciation based on how things went there. So. So yeah, if it depends on what risk appetite, I would choose undervalued. So I would go for Hamilton County, Indiana. If uh, if one selects okay something more fairly valued, one can try uh, Denver, Colorado, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you guys have any uh, questions? Um, uh, I, have, I have a question. Um, what's the majority of the assets cost multi Yes, Stefan. Uh, my name is Paolo. I have a question real quick. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Paolo. Sorry. Uh, I, I recall at the beginning of the presentation, you said uh, you invest mainly in uh, New York, the Jersey area. Is that correct? At the Northeast? Well, that's I have been investing in the, as an individual investor there, uh, but I've been looking at syndication recently out of state. So yeah, definitely more informed by some of this analysis. Okay, uh, what yeah, do you? So this analysis has informed me not to invest so much in the, uh, you know, in our region. I would say if you if you are a natural area from close to New York City as well, or. Well, no, I, I, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, in Atlanta. Okay, okay, yeah, cool. I was just wondering for, um, so your opinion basically on investing in major cities. I know you mentioned uh, Indiana and places like that, or Nevada, Colorado. Uh, what do you think about uh, places like LA, Miami, uh, New York? And mm -hmm. without having to factor the, the price or the money to invest just as a market in general? What's your opinion on investing in those city on those cities? Well, okay, you mean the second part, you mean because of affordability, it's kind of harder to 
in absolute terms, absolute prices are higher, so this kind of thing, or? Yeah, without, without, without having to factor the price. So without thinking about the price, so, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so it's very different in different ones. Um, so, and uh, there are also big cities in some less trendy states, etc. But as we saw, it's interesting, like, so let me show uh, the, just one moment, like some of the cities view. Mm -hmm. Um, no, sorry, I missed it. Oh, yeah. yeah, so, um, I mean, okay, here to this question, the best example is San Francisco, for example, one good example. Okay, yeah. So that place, okay, the most super expensive place in absolute terms, but notwithstanding that, then we have San Francisco is uh, actually undervalued. So here you can see in the undervalued list, it's actually there. So that's, I would, if there were good cap rates there. Now, it's gonna be a very competitive market. It's a little harder to find value at. One can also run some studies on where there's more value at, in which cities, in theory. Now that's okay. difficult to be pulling the inventory. But yeah, I mean, I would not invest in some of, in San Francisco, for example, because cap rates are not high. Um, but then, but then other than that, it's undervalued so from a price perspective. It's amazing. And it has been one of the really super performing markets has done really well. So it's great. It's just cap rates are not high. But then if we look at some, I think I had the cap rates for, um, for some cities yeah, like here, for instance. Now this source, like read notes, they seem to be a little bit aggressive. Like for class C, they're showing like super high cap rates. Etc. But but here you can see there are a lot of big cities where cap rates have been good. Let's say for, for class B and C. So it's yeah. great. I mean, most people invest in the cities. So okay. is the, this is the way to go. You just look up uh, which cities are undervalued, where you can make your cash flow, where you can find the deal that has value up, and and that's it. Sounds good, Stefan. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Um, anyone else? I have a question uh, about the uh, who's next here? About the reach. I think it's a bit quiet. Can you hear me right now? I think uh, I can hear you pretty quietly. Maybe if you can speak closer to the microphone. Would it be possible to just put your, also to put it on the chat maybe, your question, because I'm not able to hear, I'm not sure. Uh, ah, now it's better. I think now it's better maybe. I was just, uh, on the chat. Uh, let me see. Um, 
Okay, sorry, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't look at all the questions in the chat. Okay, sounds good. Yes, yeah, so, okay, so going on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna send the slides to everyone to, uh, so that's good. And you know, how is the COVID recession different from 2008? I mean, this is a good question because, yeah, I mean, of course, I think for specific markets, again, even and I will get, get to you as well, um, but yeah, I think I think COVID will be, of course, super different for like maybe places like New York City. So it's going to be a very, you know, can be, you know, population to move out of there, etc. So in that sense, it's very different. But bigger picture, I, I don't think prices will adjust according to something else than than what I showed here. I just don't think so. I think in the end, it always comes down to the same. Like there will be some income adjustment or or something and in the end I think it's going to be a function of valuations as well as to how big the drop is going to be at least in a residential real estate but um, yeah it's a very difficult question this is more of a data data informed kind of study that I cannot really it's very hard to predict it's what was shown on like the Redfin that slide from Redfin where they show different people moving out of New York City to different cities uh, different other cities that's that's going to be very, very interesting for sure. So topically on a county level, it's going to be different, but big picture, it will be the same. It will be still uh, drops according to valuations pretty much and things that are under valued are not going to drop. I think. So, and I mean, there are places where like in 2007, there's, there was massive population influx into Nevada, the way it is this big decade as well. And the massive population influx still didn't prevent prices to drop 60% in Nevada, which was super overvalued. So at least what I see in the data, things at the peak, things move for evaluation. Everything else is just like talk, but that's just what actually happens. So this is, this is my answer. And, and then um, Evelyn, so mm -hmm. to your question, so, so price performance of real estate investment trusts, equities versus real estate asset returns. So this, um, so at the beginning, I had a couple of slides that may help. Right, I mean, specifically the stock market, like the real estate investment trust, this is has been documented, like I said in that slide, according to studies by pension funds, that pension funds, they, um, they would work within their portfolios. So real estate, well, sorry. So for real estate investment trusts uh, were uh, held by pension funds, for instance, they would have a lot of, lots of data and uh, they would look at, for those real estate investment trusts, their underlying assets, how they have performed. And yeah, for the exact assets, Right, if you have, let's say, uh, this is res, real, real estate residential, real estate investment, REZ. If we take REZ, yeah, the exact underlying um, buildings that are in REZ, there are also mortgages in it though, indeed. But you know, it's like 50% just the actual buildings. But the exact buildings in it, they're going to 
perform according to, to this. It's just going to be more smoothened, but there will be 91% correlation according to this study. Now, how other buildings will perform is a different question, but the exact buildings underlying specific real estate investment trusts, they will perform, of course, very much in line because it's the same thing. There is no, there's no reason. And to me, the equities are informing uh, for, the, for the private real estate market because it's the most efficient market. I can't beat it. I can't do better than that with my thoughts or something. It's like if you try to trade the stock market and then you typically would lose, you know, in frequent cases at least, um, you know, it's because uh, it's difficult to have, you know, such good information. So, so this is the best information that I personally see. Yeah. Thanks. I think it's going to have an effect because at least for me with most investors that I know, like let's see here in the area, most of them think it's a see something imaginary, like the stock market real estate drop and nothing is gonna happen because we see nothing happening in the private real estate, right? And things are appearing fine, etc. I mean, except in commercial. Um, Right, but in residential, they think it's going to be fine. I don't think it's going to be fine, but, but in markets that are undervalued, it, it is bound to be fine because just, I don't think it's possible much to happen in big markets that are undervalued, let's say in states. In small markets that are undervalued, like counties, things can happen because, yeah, people can heavily move out of there or, or something like that, super difficult to predict. Do you guys have more questions? Yes, yeah, so I think it's you know very useful. So if you guys want um, want to reach out to me, so let me let me maybe put in my email address. So this is my email address. So if you want to reach out, I can send you the presentation, and maybe you will look at it and think on, on your own because it's a lot of views and ah sorry, I think I didn't send it to everyone. Yeah, so now it's, I put it on the chat. So yeah, you can look at things yourself. And I mean, I would suggest maybe like replicate like some of the same studies. It's like so easy, honestly, but it's just useful, I think. And, and just try to um, like get a sense about your specific markets. All right, any more questions? If not, I think I'm actually only five minutes over time when including the Q&A, so. Thank you, thank you, Sven. All right, thanks everyone.